Welcome to this episode of the Comedy Defect Podcast. My name is Winter Fonander. I'm a comedian and this is my show. Those of you new to the show, welcome. Those of you that are not new to the show, welcome back, guys. This is episode 49 with a very funny and uh, very loquacious Mr. Sean Sellers. Sean talked for about an hour and 25 minutes. I've cut this down to just over an hour. Sean was a great guy to interview because he barely let me get a word in edgeways, which was great because he answered most of the questions in sequence and some of the things that he just avoided. He said he would obfuscate, hide the truth, and avoid talking about himself. But he did talk about himself, but he used analogies of other comedians to do it. Such an interesting way to describe himself in the way he showed himself without showing himself, which is a really interesting way of doing it. Never had that happen before. So it's a really fun episode. We talk a lot about comedy. It gets very technical about how Sean is trying to build his act. But it's a really enjoyable episode, totally different to all the others, because he's an improviser first, and you will see that throughout this interview in which he just improvs from one subject to the next, and it's great. It makes it so easy for me. I hope you really enjoy this episode. Go find Sean on Facebook, go find him on Twitter, go and see him live. He's a very funny man, he's a very political comic, but a really lovely guy as well. Go talk to him, he's great. You can follow us on Twitter at The Comedy Defect. You can follow me at Winter Phone Under. You can also come see my live stand-up as well, and the details for that are on my website, which is winterphoneunder.com. I'm also stripping as many jokes as I can out of that Guinness Encyclopedia and putting them up on Twitter as soon as I can. Now, we've got episode 50 coming up pretty soon, so these podcasts are going to be reduced to maybe two a month. I'm going to see if I can squeeze out two a month because it's otherwise it, I don't think one's enough no one is not enough I'll do my best I'm just gonna I'm not making any promises but I'm getting busy so I've, I've got to just reduce it because the workload is ridiculous all those jokes I'm going to be taking out the Guinness Encyclopedia are going to be up on Twitter under the title The Book Dad Read and the Twitter handle for that is at Guinness Jokes I'm going to have more time to look through that book soon because I haven't had time recently I've had some really nice gigs recently I've been writing loads of material it's been going great just expanding the act it's fun new materials where it lives you can go support this podcast go to Patreon type in the comedy defect podcast you could donate as little as a pound or as much as you feel this podcast is worth and those of you that do donate thank you because you're paying for the people that can't and those of you that can't donate that's okay just share your favorite episode tell your friends about it or go onto itunes on your computer and leave us a nice honest review because it tells people where we are what we're doing and you know it, it helps pass it on guys that's what we need all the episodes are also available on youtube so you can go there and hear them and also leave a comment if you like so ladies and gentlemen please enjoy the very cagey, the absolutely lovely, and the very funny Mr. Sean Sellers. Sean Sellers, welcome to the Comedy Defect. How are you doing, man? You alright? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I have a cold. Right. Uh, which will probably make my voice sound better to me than, than normally <laughs> when, when people hear it, which is a thing, I guess. Yeah, I'm excited because I haven't done, I don't think I've done a podcast before. I've done things on podcasts, but I haven't done like a a podcast interview uh, thing before. So I'm excited about that. I also think what will be interesting during the course of this is to see how honest I am in my answers because I am, I mean, all comedians are are, are different, but I hate talking about 
uh, myself to other people. Right. I'm very private about lots of things. I will invariably uh, obfuscate and lie. Okay, great. That works. It's going to make it an awful lot of fun for me. So, because yeah. so, like, I, like, I started off as an improv comic uh-huh. uh, in the early 90s, doing kind of character stuff, and then doing as a comic actor and a theater director and, and, and all of those. And when you do that, the whole, I never played myself. Mm-hmm. I never had to play myself. I could have my own opinions, but they would be in the guise of some character or mm-hmm. some sketch or some routine or something. And I found that very, very nice. Okay. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have to let anyone re- reveal anything about myself. For the most part, I think a lot of my stand-up is still like that. Mm-hmm. It isn't very revelatory. Although, recently I've done more stuff that is me talking about my life. Mm-hmm. Which works fairly well most of the time. I think people people can get on get on board with it. But for me, it's very disquieting because I don't want you to know me. <laughs> which is, I guess, that's 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 not very conducive sometimes to stand like. Hey, well, don't be get to know me. <laughs> so you you're a theatre director. I was. Where was that? Uh, in the States, I only, I only directed plays in the States. What, whereabouts? All around the States? Uh, predominantly in the South, in New Orleans, was, was where I, I ran a theatre company with a good friend of mine who is a very good, talented, very successful actor in, in New York, sort of travels the world, performing all the time, teaches in prestigious schools mm. and, and stuff. He's, he's great. He did that, and, and I, I came over here. Still going, or is it... No, no, it, it, we, we, we put it to rest because both of us moved. We both moved to the UK, and then he moved back to the States... And I stayed here, and we kept in touch and stuff, but there wasn't really anyone to run the company mm. for us. A friend of ours did for a little while, and he's now a big... I guess he's a performance artist is the word for it. His name is Christine. Christine Vale, I think is what she's called. Uh, one of his characters, he like he opened for Peaches, right. uh, these big arena tours mm. and stuff. Uh, he comes to the UK quite, quite often. His name is, his name is Paul Swallow. Uh, and he was was part of our company, and he sort of took it over for a little while. But then he his interests were were slightly different than ours. It, one of the things that we that we really enjoyed about the company was we all had enough common interest, everybody who was participant in it, to put on kind of good and interesting things. Mm. But we were all very different personalities, and we had different interests. So that that kind of created a lot of exciting stuff. But it also meant. That once we were out of immediate proximity with each other, it was like, well, how do we continue? We've got, we've got other things. We've got other interests. We've got other things mm-hmm. to do. So it kind of saw the end of the company. But it was, it was really lovely. And we, we, we had a great time. And do you write your own screenplays and things like that still? No, so I didn't do that. I would direct stuff or... I would put on my own production. So like when I came here, I did some, I did some of my own stuff. Mm-hmm. Most of that wasn't written down. Because it came out of the kind of school of, of improvisational comedy and improvisational theater. Because I, I studied with the San Francisco mime troupe in, in San Francisco, right. which sounds like mimes, you know, yeah, yeah. holding up a wall or, or trying to get out of a box or something. Onions and yeah, it wasn't. Bicycles. It wasn't that. It, it, <laughs> sure. So it's closer to what in the UK is called pantomime, right? Because there's this weird thing that happened, in, in, supposedly, uh, with French meme and pantomime. Uh, have the reverse definitions mm-hmm. in when they have been translated into English. So meme is really a spoken thing, and pantomime is uh, like a dumb show. It's, it's quiet. And so San Francisco Mime Troupe started off from these guys in the early 60s, mid-60s, and it was very radical and performing with yippies and hippies and mm-hmm. uh, very countercultural in San Francisco. They would perform in the park, and they would do all this kind of agitprop theater and, and commedia dell'arte and improv and stuff. And I went and I often I, I kind of studied with them. Mm. You, you can write things down, but it's 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 sort of easier 
to just memorize routines through delivering them over and over and over again. So I would devise stuff with them, and I'd devise stuff for myself, and, and so on like that. Does buffoon work as well, or...? Depends on what you mean, I guess. Like, clown, some more clowning sort of stuff as well? Like, because you, you say the... Is it the Theatre de l'Arte? Yeah, uh, Comédie de l'Arte, That's very yeah. clowny, isn't it? It, it? it can be. So, like, a lot of the schools in, in France, the Gaulier and, and, and all of that, which is quite popular in the comedy scenes here, like, there are a lot of famous Gaulier kind of trained clowns, and... And people, everyone from, I guess, Sasha Baron Cohen and, and uh, Alexis Debus and, and, and others who have all kind of trained in that style to learn a clowny kind of find the idiot. There's some overlap. It isn't clowning in the sense of, you know, there's no juggling that takes place. There's no unicycles. Mm-hmm. I, I can't do any of those things. Although I have a friend who is a clown and she's very good at all of that mm-hmm. stuff. She can like stilt walk and do stuff with the ropes. And she's also a magician. She's very, very, mm-hmm. very, very talented that way. This was more kind of somewhere between what you would see from Second City or Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. or whose line it is, is it anyway. So everything from kind of short form gamey mm-hmm. sort of improv to slightly more narrative style things. I know very at the moment very popular among some people is, particularly in London at the, at the moment, is The Herald, yeah. which is this type of narrative improv story. And it's great, but it's it's kind of like, I don't know if it's like the new flavor, it's like the sriracha of, mm. <laughs> of comedy that all, all of a sudden everybody's like, have you tried this? This is, this is fantastic. <laughs> you can put it on everything. and that... <laughs> Yes, you can, and it, and it is very good. And I'm, I'm really glad that improv has kind of exploded here mm. lately. I wish it had happened a lot earlier because when I was here first, there was nothing... One person improv is pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so, I mean, there, there, there are people who are very good at it. Like, you know, there are, there are people who, 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 have, who have the mind for it. And mm-hmm. I, I can, I guess, with sort of some exercise, get back into mm-hmm. that, that mind, uh, which I would love to do. But at the same time, it was like, well, it was like a desert for it. And, and I thought, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to focus on comedic roles and I'm going to focus on dramatic acting and I'm going to not get some really huge things that won't make me famous, which did happen. Mm. I'm not still bitter about... What, what were those? Come on, let's go to those. What, what happened? Okay, well, I'll give, I'll give you one because this is a terrible story. <laughs> <laughs> and, and is, has, there a, is there a joyful one as well? Or? No, no. This okay. one has scarred my psyche and okay. I, will, I will never forget it. Uh, so it feels, it feels appropriate to share with strangers online. This one, I, it was for Band of Brothers. Oh, right. And I was up for uh, one of the brothers... I had an agent, and I went to the auditions, and I kind of got through the first kind of very preliminary stuff. I went to to one with Tom Hanks's company was producing it all, and his um, production team, their casting team, were were there. And I went in, and I read for a part, and I think I read okay. One of the things that they stipulated in the breakdown of the character was they were all supposed to be like five eleven, six foot, or something. I, I am neither of those things, but with lifts and boots, I'm close to one of them. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was wearing wearing those, and I gave, kind of gave gave the, the 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 screen the screen reading. I've done the audition, and there's this big round table in the corner, and we all kind of go to sit around the corner and have this chat about what I think of the part, what they think, and a lot of auditions for those types of things. You audition, sure, but you also do kind of an interview, and the interview is is pretty important. And so I sat down, and, and we're chatting, and and talking about the military and, and, and so on. And my father was in the Air Force, and so we're talking about that. And the woman, she's, she's really pushing on on what my father is like and what it was like growing up in the military and, 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 and all the travel that we did and, and, and things. Kind of making out that she really wants him to be this tough 
character who's hard and, and who who is a disciplinarian and, and kind of tough to get along with, which is the exact opposite of, of what my dad is like. Mm-hmm. He's very much you would be surprised that he could kill you. Like he's, mm. he's, he doesn't look the part. Mm. He, he he looks he's very jovial and he's very he's very like he's, he he. he, he he looks like Martin Sheen in The West Wing, right. uh, but he sounds like George W. Bush in reality. <laughs> and, he, and he behaves a bit more like, like George W. Uh, than that. Which these days, both are presidential, right? Now, now that Trump is president, like, we, we've had to reevaluate how, how w, what W is like. Yeah. He's, he, suddenly he's become like some, something to look up to. Like, well, yeah. you, you could do a lot worse, who, who knew? And so, you know, it's okay because my dad was not president, so it was okay that he was like this. Mm. So we had this conversation, and she wasn't very happy that I was saying, no, my mother was the real disciplinary. She was really tough, the tough one, the one that you would be convinced had, had been like a drill sergeant or something in, in, in the Army or the Air Force, and which just wasn't the case. I could see the displeasure and the disappointment in the face yeah. that I had, I had, I had, I didn't have a kind of, it was tough, and it was tough telling them that I was going to be an actor, and it was tough moving here, and mm-hmm. Because it was the reverse. It was like, well, my dad's very supportive of it. He's very happy, and he thinks it's a great idea, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. At the end of it, we all get up from the table, and it's this big round table, and I'm on one side, and she's sort of directly opposite me, the, the, the casting woman. Mm-hmm. And we get up. It looks like she's moving towards me, so I move towards her to, to say, you know, thanks very much, and nice, nice, to, nice to see you, and we'll hear back tomorrow. And I go in to shake her hand, and she steps back, and I think, oh, you're, you're moving around, because the table, being that round curved table the chairs and things are sort of in the way. So you're making space. You're moving away so that I can, we can kind of get closer to, to shake. I walk her into the wall uh, by extending my arm to her. And, and, and it's very clear she doesn't want to touch me. Oh, no. And in the end, I kind of gra- get her hand anyway, and, and I, I shake her hand, and I, I walk out, and I'm thinking, that was, that was weird, what mm. happened there? Mm. And, I, and I bump into a guy that I know who's also up for a part, who was in it, by the way. He's, he's like, well, what was she like, the cussing person? I said, well, I said, it was okay, and then the thing about my dad, and then it was, the end, it was a bit weird. He's like, yeah, she's a germaphobe. And, oh. and she's like, the one thing my agent said, the one thing she said, don't in any way like, get any close to her, don't touch her, don't do any of that. Uh, because she's really freaked freaked out by it. Yeah. That that was a. I had a tough conversation with my agent after that. Uh, that was the little nugget of information hadn't been shared. No. I, Damn it! Yeah, I made her very uncomfortable oh. in the end by by oh. forcibly grabbing her oh, hand and God. taking it. Uh, you didn't kiss her on the cheek. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. And then like you know wipe my nose or something <laughs> like I, like I'd had a I'd had a cold or something. Sneeze on her yeah. and kiss her on the cheek. Oh my God! Nightmare. That so, is vital. Info. It was really important to that part. Uh, needless to say, I'm not in it. Oh. <laughs> I've never watched it. Like I've, I've had people give me copies, try to con- try to get me to watch this. I'm never, I'm never ever watching this because I must be the only American who was in London at the time who is not in that movie. No. <laughs> like it's a miniseries. There were extras as well. There, you know, there's very bit part soldiers. Yeah. I didn't even get that. It was like this. No. That's it. Take him off the list. She's like, he shook my hand. <laughs> yeah. No, that's it. You're yeah. like, you're given the black spot. Well, really. seriously, it was, uh, it was the end. So I, I, as a consequence, I, but yeah, so that was, that was a grueling moment of your life. That was a sad, that was a sad time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so how long have you been over here, Sean? Quite a while. Like I've, I've, I, 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 longer than I, I think that I imagined I would be. I, I didn't have any plan. I just, I just kind of came over to study and perform, train, and then I left, and then I came back, and I've kind of been, been ever since. And I, I, I guess I go back to the states probably every year and a half um, is what it works out to. Sometimes a couple of times a year. Sometimes like last year I didn't go back at all. I kept, I kept planning to go back to do some stuff in New York, and then 
could never quite get everything together and organized to to do it. I've got a big kind of hub in New York. I've got a lot of people that I know, and I've got family and friends that are that are based there. So when I tend to when I go back, I tend to go to New York and then occasionally go to where my parents live to, to see them. I think the last time I went to their house to their to their town was. 2013. Mm. I'm obfuscating and I'm being cagey because it was 2012. I, <laughs> I'm very good at dates. Cool. I remember, I remember <laughs> dates for, for everything. Like I, I filled out this form for, for my son to give him a U.S. citizenship and they ask you on this form that they're, they're very precise in the wording which is incredibly unhelpful because it says document all the periods of time in which you were in the U.S. And then they give kind of an example about uh, let's say you were an American citizen who lived abroad mm. and you went to university in the States. So if you did that, don't put the academic year if you went home for like a Christmas holiday mm. or you went home over the summer because you were not present in the U.S. during those periods. Mm-hmm. So they would really want you to say, you know, August to December and the exact date entry, exit, mm-hmm. and then, you know, January to May or June, entry and exit. Mm-hmm. I could do my childhood, but that, that took some help from my mother of getting exact dates when we moved to dress. And then for everything else, I, would, I went to my passports and I was looking at entry and exit dates and I was comparing mine and, and my wife's, because so, hers would have entry into the U.S. and mine would have entry back into the U.K. Mm. And she didn't have the one from the period of like 95 to 2005. She didn't have that, that passport. Mm. And there were some really vital dates in there because I was in and out of the country so much. Mm. I wasn't sure. There I am. They, they give you a full page of kind of dates and then a secondary page. And I'm documenting like yeah. 20, 30 different periods of being in and out of the country in different addresses mm. I, so I, I showed up for the appointment filling out that form was tougher than most background checks mm. for the government in the US because you because they, they do a similar kind of degree of scrutiny but I brought that I had to bring proof of like matriculation in the US that I'd been there mm. uh, before the age of 14 so I, I brought my childhood medical records mm. school like some report cards from the equivalent of primary school and I had some, some awards like you know science fair or piano mm-hmm. this I had, I had an Eagle Scout mm-hmm. award thing and I had all I had all of these documents with me just to prove who I was mm. so that he could get his his citizenship so much so that I, I brought too much like they were like ah that's enough okay we don't, we don't need we'll, I've got another pallet we'll take we'll take your word we'll take your word for some of it don't that's great. don't worry and then and then we went to the to the interview. It was a little bit interesting. At the embassy, we assumed that you'd get taken into this little room, mm. but really it was like all kind of these bank teller tills. So the first one we, we went to, we kind of submitted everything. And then the second one I went and I paid the mm. fees. And then the third window is where we had this little interview. Mm. And the interview, they, they asked about my name and they asked about uh, an alias that I have and why I have that alias. And there's no legal document within it, but it does say, do I have other names? Yes, I do. That, mm. is, that is it. And then... There were just certain questions that they would ask kind of by the by more, multiple times. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. I assume this is part of your, your, your training. This is your job telling, trying to catch if my story changes or if it's, mm-hmm. or if it's the same. It had the potential to be like the movie Brazil, but it, was, it, it wasn't. It was, it was very kind of transactional and, and straightforward and, mm-hmm. and quick. But you get that uh, same sort of thing with people do online uh, applications for jobs, don't they? Yeah. And they ask the same question 
about four or five times throughout the whole thing, just worded completely differently. And you're like, okay, look, I get it. I've answered the same. But you can't get away with just answering the same thing for each question. They go, well, obviously this person isn't taking this seriously. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, you know I mean, I'll, we need a person who doubts their personality just a little bit. No, we don't want them to be fully assured because they're obviously an arrogant asshole. This is what they will be, isn't it? Like, oh, it's all, all strongly agree for everything. No, this person, we can't have this person. Or like, yeah. you know, maybe... But you want a, just a little, a little bit of self doubt. I think they want from you, isn't it? Yeah. But so yeah. So he, he got his, uh, he got his citizenship. He did. He'll get the paperwork at some point. Mm. Uh, I've paid for it already. So, <laughs> so yeah. So he'll have. He has dual citizenship. He's both. He's both a British and, and an American. Brilliant. That's best ever. Yeah. The only downside, he will never be president. What you do? Did you, did you want that for him? Uh, no, not necessarily. But I like the idea. Like I, I I've always liked the idea that I, I could be mm-hmm. president. Yeah. It won't happen, but I could be it. Mm-hmm. And certainly in, in today's America, like, you know, could, could is as good as will. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I could, I, I could, I could, I will be president mm-hmm. because why not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Trump's in, you know, that's it. And like, you know, you could just say you were president at this stage because, you know, it would be, you know, your truth. Yeah. It'd be, you know, who cares about anyone else's truth? It's your truth, isn't it? That's it? it. As, long, as long as I get Breitbart News to, to report it, it'll, mm. it'll be true. Yeah. What, do you, what do you do? You're a full-time actor then? No, I am, I am a full-time comedian uh, who makes very little money. Mm-hmm. That, that, is, yeah. that is the sad truth. Yeah. yeah. And so you've been, uh, are you writing an hour or are you putting your show together at the moment or what's going on? Very, very slowly. So I probably will do a show next year. The intention is to take that show to the States, possibly Brighton or, or some of the small festivals, but I, I'm not intending to go to Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Why, why not Edinburgh? It's not a huge ambition of mine to, mm-hmm. to do it. It, it, I'm, I don't have anything against Edinburgh, the, the, the city or, or Edinburgh, the festival. <laughs> they're both, they're both equally fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking to, to somebody about about it. And this just sounds terrible to all the comics who are going. This is my this opinion of mine, because because I said it's like if you you make pizza really well, and you go every year Naples has a festival, and so you go down to Naples to sell your pizza along with everybody else who's selling pizza, and because it's Naples, it's the home of pizza. Who is going to eat your pizza? Like you're, you're not a famous pizza maker. Mm-hmm. So unless you've got some amazing spin on this dish that you're able to sell, you know, the hell out of, no one is going to notice it. But you're going to have spent a lot of effort and a lot of time, and potentially, you know, have this kind of disheartening realization that, that, you know, you're you're one of hundreds of people who are who are attempting this. Um, and you might actually, you know, your pizza might be the best, but if no, if, if very few people see it or, or you know get a chance to eat it, then you, you you can only kind of come away feeling disheartened. I'd much rather go to the place that where they're like, you make pizza, holy shit, you know, let's, let's have so appreciative sort of thing. Yeah, it's great. It's great. You've great. You got that option. You can just go and tour it in, in America and, and, and like around New York as well. I mean, those theater contacts are going to really help come in handy. Yeah, the, I'm, there's a couple of festivals near where people I know live. So I can stay with them, <laughs> see people that I know, and do some festivals. So that's kind of what I'm thinking of, of uh, at, at the moment. Uh, yeah, so that's 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 the plan at the moment. And you're saving an awful lot of dough. I well, I'll, <laughs> cert- I'll certainly be saving some money for for Edinburgh because I, I think this year I was talking to somebody, and because of the sort of swap and the size of venues and the number of venues that are available, a lot of the 
professional acts that would have done paid venues have moved to the free venues. Mm. So they're kind of getting the, the premier free venues. Mm. And so all the people who you, who last year got the premier free venues getting like the second best. Mm. And so it's kind of that trickle down where each, each rung is getting a slightly lower quality venue than they had. Mm. To be perfectly honest, I, of, of all the people that you interview, I will be one of the least well-known. <laughs> There'll be uh, some small subset of people who will, who will know who I am. Mm. So I don't, I, if, if I had greater name recognition, you know, if, if I had a big agency supporting me, those would be kind of circumstances that I think would, would help. So what I prefer to do is take the approach where I'll, I'll, I'll take a show and I'll travel it around and I'll, I'll get it just right. I'll get all the elements together. And then if I feel like, you know what? I've got the time and I've got the money to spend on Edinburgh, I'll do it. Because hmm. I think, for me, the show I was originally going to do was based on a joke that I had done where I would prophesize certain things. I did a joke around a year ago about, or a little more than a year ago, I guess a year and a half ago now, about El Chapo, the Mexican drug lord mm-hmm. who was interviewed by Sean Penn. The joke was about why he wanted to be interviewed. And it turned out that I was right. Part mm-hmm. of the joke that I said, this is what's going to happen, turned out that that is what happened. Mm-hmm. As a consequence, I, I tacked onto that joke that this joke is now true. Mm-hmm. I'm like a prophet now. Mm-hmm. And then I would make other predictions at the end on like spurious stuff that I had said mm-hmm. in, in, in the set. Cheryl Cole was going to be engaged to Trevor McDonald mm-hmm. and, and kind of things like that. I said, you know, just wait because I'm... I'm I'm a prophet. Yeah. And then we had the baby and the circumstances around the baby have changed us. So I said, well, actually, there's a different show that can be done that probably would get better support because it's, it's the story of kind of prematurity and a, and a premature baby. That might be able to be something that, like the Bliss Charity might be interested in mm. or it might be that, you know, I could raise money for, for groups mm. doing that show about the circumstances of being in a, a neonatal uh, ICU and, mm-hmm. and, and special care and, and all the circumstances that go around babies yeah. and, and health and, 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 mm. and, and care and, and childhood. So it'd be kind of a parenthood show, which is you know, pretty common. There, there, there are plenty of them. But there's, there's a little bit of a different mm. uh, angle on some of that. And so I thought, well, that might be something that I'll, that I'll do instead. Mm. That's what I'm very slowly working on. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. But I mean, it's, it's writing what you're like, you know, what's happening in your life now, isn't it? It just get, it just it push the new stuff that happens now just pushes the old stuff out of the way. I can't connect to that stuff anymore. So it's going to, it comes to the fore. Yeah. And that's, that's where it's probably a little bit more personal than I like. Right. <laughs> because I don't like people knowing about me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, which is, I would say, that's not very helpful and conducive to, particularly to like club sets or, mm. or when you're doing nights whether they're free or it's like fairly low, in, you know, kind of price of entry, mm. and they don't know who you are, and they see me come on, and they hear my accent, and they see the way that I dress, and it's like, who are you? <laughs> and if I don't address any of it, which yeah. has always been my preference, like, mm. let's not talk about me. Mm. Let's talk about things that are happening. Mm. Let's talk about let's talk about the world around us. Let's talk about popular culture. Let's talk about kind of. Not necessarily observational stuff, but mm-hmm. it, it is kind of current affairs observations and mm-hmm. politics and stuff. Let's talk about that, which I think would, would generally creates a challenge mm. because I've got to I've got to do that whilst also being yes, I have an accent, yes, mm-hmm. I dress this way, and yes, I'm not from here, and yes, I'm telling you why I think you know what mm-hmm. I think about your country and, and mm-hmm. so on. And I just keep like, how many more hurdles and mm-hmm. barriers can I put between me and the audience? Mm-hmm. And still succeed. Mm. The, the answer is not a lot. <laughs> so so I've, I thought, okay, I'll take on Barry Crimmins' advice. So Barry Crimmins, if you don't know Barry Crimmins, Barry Crimmins is a, uh, an American comedian. Mm. He's really uh, influential and, and, and significant mm. to the 
Boston scene of the early 80s. Recently, there was a film mm-hmm. called Call Me Lucky, mm-hmm. which was made by Bobcat Goldthwait, which who was one of his kind of mentees, I guess, you know, he, he had a sort of mentoring relationship with him. He's a big political comedian, and, mm-hmm. he, and, he, and he always has been. He sort of gave this great free bit of advice, which is when you're doing that kind of thing, the first thing you have to do is prove that you're funny. You have to tell a joke that says... I've got this. Mm-hmm. I know how to be funny. Now that you believe that I know how to be funny, give me the freedom to talk about whatever it is I want to talk about without it becoming a rally or being preachy or a testimonial about something. What happened was I, 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 did, a, I did a night. Usually when I go to Kent, I die. But I've had a couple of stormers in Kent where I've mm. just like, ah, finally, yeah. these people mm-hmm. understood two basic truths. Uh, one, they're in a comedy club. Mm. They, so I must be telling jokes. Two, they paid. So the bookers must have thought, oh, this person knows how to tell jokes. Mm. It, you know, it's not, it's not an open mic night. It's not prove that I can tell a joke, prove that I'm funny. It's just believe it. Let me start telling jokes and then go. And I, I did a night and I died terribly. And it gave me such uh, energy to leave that night and, and go, okay, you have to write some more jokes. Mm. And these jokes that you're writing, they have to be really high hit rate. Mm-hmm. And they have to be uh, about you. And so I sat down with a piece of paper, I counted the number of jokes that I would say in order, and how many jokes that I thought needed to exist in at least the first five minutes to have kind of a joke, a joke every eight seconds or, or something, to have a, a, you know, a, a strong enough hit rate. And, and certainly if they were every eight seconds, if they didn't all land, I was still safe, because there was another one on, mm-hmm. on the way. And so I'm grateful for that terrible night. Yeah. But it did mean... Okay, I have to talk more about myself, and I don't really appreciate you making me do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I've been I've been doing that. The, in the back of my mind, right, I feel like I'm in a particular place in in my own comedy where there's where I'm where I want to go and and where I am, and and then there's where I've been. So, like I said, I I, I was an improv comic, and I I did sketches and characters and all of that, and it was very freeing, and I could be that kind of mad idiot on stage and when I was very young I got great this is going to sound self-aggrandizing oh, it certainly is not intended that way but I got great comparisons to oh that's very like Steve Martin it's like mm. it's like it's like Robin Williams which which is when you're 19 and 20 it's like oh fantastic yeah. that isn't necessarily what I want to be but that's that's that tells me fantastic things mm-hmm. that's really great encouragement and then when I kind of quit performing because I quit everything cold I was I was getting stuff like I was on a the last thing that I did that I enjoyed I was on a I was on an original soundtrack recording and that was maybe the last thing I did that I that I enjoyed and I thought I've just got to get away because for a long time it had been sort of a badge of honor that I just knew very autistic people I, I kind of lived in creative circles but because of that you're, you're very cloistered as well you don't know much about regular life you don't know about what it's like to go to work to be a business person to have to do this or that because all you're doing is is arty or artistic stuff. I thought, I've got to have a clean break, and I walked away from everything. Eventually, I got to the point where I was, I've got to go back, or I'm going to go insane. It's, it's either the thing that I did, and that's just this historic experience, or it still is who I am. Mm. And I still felt like it was very much who I, who I was, and I just needed to go back in front of an audience. But I also knew that I was in a different place. Like, I'm, I was much older than I, than I was. And my impetus for it was to go back and talk about stuff. Talk about kind of real, real things of weight and consequence. Mm. And so I, that, I think, and, and to an extent, that's why it was another way of me not ever having to be me, right? Because when, when, you, when you're playing all those characters, you're being very spontaneous and inventive and you're allowing the first free-flowing of ideas and it's, 
it's infectious and it's fun, but it's not terribly revealing of yourself unless you're doing some sort of archaeology into, I've seen this guy many times and I've pieced together from all of these, you know, these are the things that are on this person's mind and I'm getting into that person's psyche, which is, no one does. Mm. So coming back, I was able to be very impersonal and, and doing that. Now, having to bring in the personal yeah. to convince people to listen to me a bit more, I would love to be able to get to a point where I can blend all of that back together and put together myself as a as a completed person and persona. Right now, it's when I MC, it's all very off the cuff. It's all very improvised. I did a, I did a spot on on Saturday night uh, in, for the Brighton Festival, and I did some of my material, and it was going pretty well. But I could also tell that there were a few people who were just you know they, no one noticed that they weren't really paying attention, but I I noticed, and so I just kind of went out for them, and I and I kind of started taking the piss out of them and having a conversation and and and, and improvising and riffing in that set. That's not me really blending those two things still. That's still, here's my material and here's me engaging on off-topic stuff. Here's me doing a bit of the kind of emceeing of my own, of my own set uh, while, I, while I engage with, with, with people who, who, who aren't paying attention. Sort of like banter, like fake banter. Yeah, like, like I say, I, what I'd like to do is, is, is get to a point where I, can, where I can blend it all together. And, and, and one, of those, one of those things I think on that journey, I have an idea for a show, like a night that I would like to put together and I've been talking to a couple of venues about about what it would what it would entail and it would be a little bit like going on a chat show. Mm. So you, the audience would would be would be there you have a host, you have a musical uh, opening, so you have a music theme song for the show with with the kind of comedy musician who who's who's your sort of sidekick you're you're playing playing the theme the theme tune if you're going to do topical jokes as kind of like a monologue you you can even have the cue card right because you can just write to them you don't have to memorize the topical joke that you just came up with because you can just read it off in front of the other and it will feel like this is this is how these american late night chat shows are are produced mm. and then you can have comedy guests and you can have improvised interviews and you you can have games and you can have stand up in the middle and you can you can kind of mix, blend all of those things those things together in a somewhat anarchic kind of night, mm-hmm. and you can record all of it. And anything that isn't the the stand up sets, you could you know put out as a podcast. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a it's kind of a show, mm. uh, or so multiple shows even. You know, as you say, you could edit it up, cut it up, and put it out to onto whatever heading you want. Yeah, that's great. So that's the kind of thing that I think that that would that would probably begin to help blend together what feels still very much like separate strands mm. and, and 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 different different streams. Uh, and start to figure out how how does that all get pulled together. Mm. So you're sort of mining at the moment. You're trying to be more vulnerable then, uh, be more open on stage rather, than, and as well as be more connected with the things that you feel need to be talked about. Because if you have a very strong feeling about a subject, you need to again highlight who you are at the beginning to know where you're coming from completely. Whereas where you sit in this subject, it's going to be okay. Well, some people you see talk about some stuff and go, blah blah. This is sort of this is the thing. And it's a thing, it's a funny idea, but once they know that your rage or your maybe discontent, because it's, usually, it's going to be discontent, isn't it, more, more generally what you're talking about, you're not going to be like, oh, I love this, does anyone else love this? And they go, yeah, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you hate it, it's like they know where you sit in it, so you need to, it's like you're trying to do, you're trying to free flow it, or are you just trying to, like, like you have like a, 
a cloud in, above you, kind of just picking things yeah. out and linking it together as you go. And go, oh, look, you saw how it was at the beginning. Now, well, let's just go with this where it's else is going to go and then bring it together at the end sort of thing. I like all those words except the word vulnerable. Okay, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> because, like I said, I don't, I don't want people to know anything about yeah. me. But, yeah, to an extent, so, for example, like, when I'm best on stage at the moment doing my, my, my stand-up is when I have no set list in my mm-hmm. head. When I have decided in advance, do not pick a running order. Mm. You, all of your jokes are thematically, you are able to segue between them, or not segue, because you don't have to segue mm-hmm. uh, every time. You can just change the topic. And again, people at some point will realize, it's an artificial thing. We're on, I'm, on, I'm, I'm either on a stage, or I'm in front of you with a microphone. Mm-hmm. We're not really having a conversation. They, they don't all have to perfectly spring from topic to topic. But I am, I'm not equally kind of, it's not, they're not one line, it's not sort of randomly jumping from topic to topic. Mm-hmm. So when I do that, and I'm very clear in my head about that in advance. I have fun. The audience tends to have more fun. And, and I'm certainly, certainly freer because I'm very present. And when I go in, particularly when I'm working on new material, and I say, no, I've got to say these jokes because I need to know if my you know, writer's hat is right. This is where the punchline is. This, is. this is the way that needs to be stressed. And this is the emotion you need to convey when you say it to give it the right level of funny. Or no, that, that's too many words. What is the word I need to cut? How can I convey the same thing in fewer words? And so on and so forth. When I'm doing that, it feels very stilted and disconnected to the, to the, to the audience because I'm on a clock. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to say these words. Shut up. You're, you're, <laughs> I don't have an infinite amount of time to do these jokes. I have a set period of time and I've got to get all of them out. Stop. Mm. Stop laughing, or and sometimes is the case, uh, stay quiet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, although you're not helping me figure out where the where the punchlines are because mm-hmm. you're not laughing. So I, I think it is a little bit about you know being able to, like you say, to kind of pluck from a from a cloud in the in the sky, and and some of that as well is kind of predicated on how prodigious a writer you are, mm-hmm. right? Because I up until the baby was born, I was trying. This was the goal. This was not this was not the achievement. Mm-hmm. I would try to write 100 jokes a day based on a list that I keep of premises mm. that I... So I, I spend all day noting down premises, just facts and information mm. and, and, and kind of experiences and, and things about the world and myself and so on. Mm. And then I would kind of go through those and try to figure out reverses and all triples and jokes and mm. all those kind of technical things about how to tell a joke or write a joke. I would do that just to get my uh, mind exercising mm-hmm. so that if there was something great it could go on, and it, but it, it was kind of writerly great. It can go on Twitter. Mm. It can go as a longer thing on online somewhere, or it can, if it's the right kind of thing, it can go into a routine. It can become a piece of stand-up. It, it can start, and and a, and a routine can be built around it, mm. and and evolve into a mm. into a set piece mm. that can be kind of performed and, and stuff. And when I was doing that consistently, I felt very very good, very strong, very confident. My kind of comedy mind was working. Mm. And since the baby's been born, I've, I've found less time to do that. And so when I've been writing new material, I, I've, I've discovered for myself, it's taken a little bit longer to get the, to figure out how, how does that, how to make that premise funny. It's like, oh, I'm just staring at words on a page right now. Wait, where do you go with that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to get, to get back in that as well. Because I think once you've got your mind well exercised and you've got a wealth of material that you know, it gives you that freedom to, oh, you're not enjoying this, or oh, ooh, here's this thing that we were just talking about. This person just said this thing uh, previously, or, or an audience member tried to you know, participate and, and, and said something. 
ah, I can go over here and I can mm. say this and I can do that and I can do the other. And so that's, I just need to keep doing that. Yeah, play the mental tennis. Yeah. yeah, with, the, yeah. with the thing as well, with the, with the audience table. Because cause cause that is just a, a memory, that's a memory thing, isn't it? It's like of having that wealth of material and going, right, I've got all these jokes, I've got something for everyone, and you're just improving with whatever thing comes up at the time. I mean, like, it's fine at the beginning when you've got a small area of, of, of your premises and you can go, right, well, okay, great, so this is going to happen now. Okay, great, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. You've got, but you've got a 10-minute set, and, you've got, and you look, you'll look like you'll look really f- slick if you can do that for a 10-minute sl- set, but as you go, you know, so if you write new jokes, oh, I love this new joke, I've got this new bit, and I've got this other new bit, and you're like, okay, well, and all the jokes just collide. Yeah. And they just, there's a bit busy in there, so you can't really, you just try and learn the, the, the I know it sounds silly, but just try and learn the bits, isn't it? Of course, get yeah. stuffed into your head. And I say time is, 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 is the key, and, and of course, energy that you yeah. uh, that have, don't have at the moment. To me, there's a trap for for new, newer comedians that exists in this country. Thanks in a large part to competitions and gongs and stuff like that, which is you're building a really that really tight five or that really tight seven or that really tight ten. It's great, you know, you're 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 succeeding and, and it's going well, and that's becoming this really oiled piece of, of of comedy in a disinterested audience or in a hostile audience. You you are you are primed to fail because you cannot deviate from that set, and simultaneously, because it's winning you garners and, and recognition. If you are fortunate enough to get picked up by somebody really big, they're investing in you, but but you might not have the fortitude and the wherewithal to think if I'm not producing for them, I will I'll, I'll get dropped. And how do I react when I get dropped by by, by this this big agency? Or this, you know, this big representation of this huge opportunity. Whereas, if your goal is just to get better mm. and to be funnier and to deliver things slicker, all those other things will fall into place in the way that they that they will. You know, mm. not, not being fatalistic. I'm not saying you know it'll be fate and all kind of come together. Mm. It's just you you will get. It's like exercise. Mm. You your heart and the lungs and everything gets stronger the more you work it. And so there are a couple of rooms in particular that I go to that I know are tough. Mm. They're tough because you can't do material or they're tough because the audience is really disinterested or they're, they're tough because the, the MC makes the night hostile. As much as I don't like them sometimes, I go back to those rooms again and again and again because I know what it's doing for me is it's freeing me up. Mm. It's the exercise of, I know the jokes. I know, I know these jokes work. I know how to be funny. I know that I'm funny. So all I have to do is convince them that I know what I'm doing. Mm. And there are lots of ways that I, that I can do it. The more ways I practice and kind of get, get that exercise mm. on those things, the, the better I'll get it. You know, it's, it's like, I'm not a gym person, but if you, you know, when you're doing the leg days and you're doing that mm. the, the, the stuff and you think, oh, this is, this is really difficult and I'm not seeing the payoff. Mm. And it's, it's, wouldn't it be great to do always a warm room or, you know, if, again, particularly if you're a newer comedian, mm. to do the bringer nights where you've got a guaranteed audience and they're going to be supportive for the most part mm. and they're going to be kind of laughing more perhaps than, than, they, than they should. It makes it easier, but it doesn't necessarily help you train mm. because, because you're, not, you're not wearing the, the weights around your wrists mm. and, 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 your, and your ankles. Yeah. You're running at a, at a, at a, at a slow, slow pace and you're getting a lot of encouragement. Mm. To an extent, it all those circumstances. What they do is they mirror the the big nights. So, like when you when you go to Commedia or when you go to rooms where like Covent Garden or backyard or places where you are being where you're being paid, 
mm. and the audience the audience is paid they they are up for comedy they want you to be funny and they give you so much credence mm. to turn them off those rooms become easy and are fun and a breeze mm. because it's like taking the the weights off mm -hmm. but if you've done all your training without the weights on mm -hmm. you don't really know how to handle those those rooms because you're 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 underdeveloped and you're undertrained and you're not fit for that. How much further can I pull out this, this no, you analogy? Can't, you're, 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 your stabilizers are always on, yeah, and you you don't notice that you're you're improving or or progressing or or are fit for for the job. You know, you kind of go because you need that that balance. Like as you say, you're doing you're working out in the the really tough rooms. So like when you go out of town. And you're like, oh man, well, something's happened here. We don't know what's going on. But even in equally, even in those really good rooms, you might have an audience that are yep. just not quite, not quite there yet. And you just might need to just chivy them on just a little, give them a little bit of a, hey, come on, like a little bit of a tap. Like someone, I, I remember, what was it? I did the backyard a few months ago, and like there was, they were a bit cool. They were a little bit cool, and they just needed that little bit of a tap at the front to just go, okay, I've got this, guys. That and I just someone happened. Someone happened before I went on. Oh, something like, really like the, the applause stopped like about three steps before I got to this microphone, and I was like, "Great, you know." And so, and I was like, "Right, I'm I'm taking this emotion which I'm feeling annoyed about the fact that they just couldn't be bothered to just get give it that little bit further and gave it that little push to ramp me up into the next bit. Like, okay, this is a moment we're going to share at the beginning, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Saying, being that having being in that moment of like okay we're going to share this moment and I'm going to do some stuff there will be other moments and if there are you've got them or I've got them whatever it is we've all got this you know so they can trust you as yeah. you say that's a tough lesson for for a New York comedian but it's also like for me having taken such a long break mm -hmm. and then decided to solely focus on stand up it's muscle memory to a point but it's also still you've you've got to relearn some lessons and so there are many nights that I'll come off and I will have done fine and people will have enjoyed it and I'll come off just like despondent with myself why didn't you do this or why didn't you say that mm. what were you know you were not how many times do you have to learn this one particular lesson like virtually <laughs> i'm coming off stage saying how many times do you have to learn not to plan what you're going to say first mm. because as soon as you do you spend so much effort of it, it's almost like you you're coming up to going guys i've got something really funny to say and <laughs> No one says that. No one comes up to you and says, "Listen, this gold. Here's here's this thing that you're you're gonna listen, everybody. You're gonna love me because of this." And that just doesn't happen in real life. It just throws everything off, and that's the kind of thing that I'm I'm always contending with. Because the other probably is in in my regular sort of off stage self. I am not a terribly funny person. I take ages. Like I have a conversation with my wife and for just a, a three minute conversation could take me 20 minutes to say, because I will hunt for the word that, that I mean. I will, I will pause for ages. She like, I kind of like I'm doing now I, and I won't, I won't know. And I'll be very mannered. I, I'm, I constantly gesticulate when I, when I talk, then, you know, when I, when I go, when I go on stage, I tend to be very high energy mm. I mean, I've had people compare, like, watching a conductor perform because the arms are going everywhere. Uh, and so, you know, which is why most of the time I will leave the mic in the stand because if I don't, if, if I have the mic in my hand, then, I've only, but I've, then I'm, I'm like, I'm imbalanced. I've got this one arm flailing around the room. And 
this other one that is just tethered to near my chest, yeah. or I'm constantly switching like a baton between the two, so that this hand needs to move for this, and this hand needs to move for that, and it, and now as an act, you're just it's like <laughs> it's like those people that take the the cloth, you know, the, the yeah. what are those scarves? What are they called? Scarves. Yeah, yeah. I'm wearing one, and I yeah. still can't think of the word. And and they're flowing the scarf. They're doing that scarf dance, yeah. you know, like Salome, kind of yeah. tempting John the Baptist. They're doing all of this, and you think. You have no idea what I've said because all you've done is watch this guy moving this mic around. So I'll I'll plant it and I won't move. And what I've noticed from that, to an extent, on certain nights, particularly if you're in the middle of the bill in the UK, is if you leave the mic on the stand, it's almost like a signal to the audience: "Ooh, this guy doesn't know. He's, he, he's this guy's not a comedian." Because comedians, what they do is they come up, they're like, hey, everybody, and they take the, the mic out of the stand, and they either they move the stand away, or they do the casual, I'm going to lean on the stand, or, or I'm, the per- I'm the fidgeter, and I'm going to, this stand is going to do all sorts of stand Olympics, you know, it's doing these kind of Pilates yeah. with all the shapes it's contorting to whilst, whilst they're talking. And I've noticed, like, Simon Evans is a great example of this. I watched him, hmm. I've been on the bill with him, and he's, he was just fantastic the night I was with him, but I watched him on live at the Apollo or something like hmm. that. And he comes out, all these comedians, he's in the middle of the thing, all these comedians have done it with a hand mic. He comes out with the stand in his hand, planks that, uh, plants that, that stand down, and starts talking. When I noticed that he, that he does, and I thought, ah, that's, there's, that's the way around this, this mm. problem, is he then starts leaning it around and moving it like, like, he's, a, like he's a singer, you know, yeah. you know, when the singer and they grab it, and they grab the stand and they're holding the stand, right, because I, I need... I, I need the extra. It's like, it's like it becomes an instrument, you know. It's like their like their guitar, and they they kind of hold. And he doesn't shake it or anything like that, but he does bend it and sort of move yeah. it and this and that. And then it's it's like a gear shift and allows you to kind of operate the audience in a way. Mm. And and I thought, oh, no one in this room, you know, at least the way it's edited. But I but I'm willing to believe that this is the way it happened because he's he's very talented. No one is thinking twice about. Here is a guy who has walked on with the stand and walks off with a stand. It is that he needs the stand because his arms are doing things, yeah. and he's he's using his hands as a as a way of expressing jokes, and he uses it to kind of to raise the hand to. Now the audience is wrapped. They're, they're watching the hand, and he stopped talking, and then the hand is going again. And you think, ah, yeah, that's whole timing mechanism. That's part of that's part of the the charm of his set. If he was holding the mic. Mm. He would lose something because yeah. he's not a wanderer. Mm. He's not, he, you know, he's not Michael McIntyre, you know, who, who, who is a little bit like that dog on a chain mm. that's running up and down the fence, which is why he, he, he works best, I guess, with the radio mic because mm. he, he, can, he can do all of the arm stuff, but he's pacing back and forth across mm. that stage. And it works very well for him. And I think it would be very weird if he came out and you watched him and he was stuck on a mm. stand. I wonder, you know, I was reading some the other day that saying, you know, he recognized that his chat show or whatever had failed, and I thought, I wonder if that's the reason, because he was static. You see somebody that can't, you, you cannot now imagine him not moving. He needs to move, he needs to move around. He's not Dara or someone who, Dara, you can, he, he moves, but he also doesn't move, and you think, okay, it's no big deal, he's, he's pacing and wandering up and down a stage, and it, it, he's kind of moving around a little bit, and I, I, I thought, that to me was thinking, oh, that's the way he subtly, Simon Evans is subtly signaling to the audience I know I've got the stand. I still know what I'm doing. Whereas sometimes, you know, like I say, it's particularly when you're middling, you've got the stand in there, and it's, why has he got the stand? Mm. Why is it, why is it? So, because yeah. when I MC, I'll do both. Mm-hmm. I'll hold, I'll have it there, and then sometimes I'll pull it out, and then I'll put it back. Yeah. 
And they, you know, there it's, it's housekeeping. It's like, oh, well, that's, that's the artifice of the MC. Mm-hmm. The stand is there. And if you're opening, it's not so bad because they haven't seen anybody else. They haven't seen anybody wander around. Uh, but when you've got, you know, a real strong opener, maybe there's two middles, and the other people are wandering around, and then you're the one there kind of stuck with it. It's, it's ooh. Yeah. Is this, when, when did he start? Who's, who's this yeah, guy? And you think, oh, okay, fine, fair yeah. enough. Um, so I think that's... I don't know why I started talking about that. Other than <laughs> what, you're just like trying to work out other the than, physicality. Yeah, other than, yeah, that's right. Other, other than to say that when I, when I am on stage, the physicality of the improv and the characters is there, mm. but those things aren't there. So mm. it's, it's slowly starting to, to blend. Mm. But also, I mean, you, you've, you've seen me perform several times and we, we, we've been together. You know I dress a very certain way. Mm. And I don't come out in T-shirts and, and, and trainers. And I don't oh, be the most dressed person mm. uh, yeah. on, on the bill. And then I've got the accent to contend with. And mm. I've got lots of hair. And I've got this and that. And it is, I do feel a little bit like, I say, how many, how many, how many obstacles mm. can I put in front of myself before I have to convince you that... that that I can I can tell a joke, and I'm not like Alistair Beckett King is perfect in his look. The jokes and his persona perfectly suit that that temperament. But also, it's a very English thing. Like you, you know, his his show that he's doing, you can imagine it's a little bit like Alec Guinness, Kind Hearts and Coronets. You know, if you've ever seen, have you ever seen this Alec no. Guinness movie? So this Alec Guinness movie, it's an Ealing Ealing comedy. Alec Guinness plays all the fam all the members of a particular family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a murder that takes place, and he, and he performs every single character, and it's very gothic, it's very arch, it's very English, and that's in my mind whenever I whenever I think of Alistair, I think of, uh, of that that movie because it's for for the UK. You just go with it. You go, yeah, I know that. That's part of our history, and I get I get that style, and I get that that temperament, and I get that thing, and I still feel very disconnected to the UK in that sense. Mm. That I don't, I feel far more American. Mm. And I know that when I'm in America, I have, I am so much more at ease with my comedy mm. because I, I, I know we have the same rhythm and there is a difference of, of rhythms in the comedy and there's a different rhythm in the people and there's a different rhythm in, in, you know, I don't, I don't have to explain how I sound. I don't have to do this. I don't, even though I don't particularly sound like a lot of other Americans, but I, I, I do still sound American. And so I don't have to, I don't have to explain that. I don't have to apologize, but also I'm not an American performer here who comes out matches a particular stereotype of, of, of Americana. It's not like, oh, well, of course that person's American. It's like, who is this guy again? And so I, I, I think that's still ill at ease. Uh, and that, that again, that, that's, I've talked too much about no, it's, myself. It's, no, no, no. Is, is there, <laughs> sorry, is there, a, is there like a, just, a, just one line that you could come out with and go, there must be one line you could hear? You know, there is. It's funny that you say, so I was listening to this thing with Comedians and Cars with uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin. Mm. They have this great conversation. And one of the things that, that Steve Martin talks about is Steve Martin's obsession with the first joke, mm. the first line, mm-hmm. which I am more obsessed about than any other thing that I do, mm. is the first words that come out of my mouth. And how much Steve hate and, and Jerry as well, they hate how, how's everybody going and how's mm-hmm. everybody doing, how's this, that. Why, would that. why should that be the first thing that they hear out of you? Mm-hmm. They should hear something that is an identifier, it's a joke, mm. and, and it reveals something that tells you, oh, this is the style of the jokes that are to come, or this is the thing that I'm suddenly, I'm, I'm going to get you this way, and I'm going to slap your face because I'm going to spin it, or, 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 mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And always trying to figure out, and, I, and I, I'm the same, I'm always working on what's the first joke, and I, and I have one that works really 
that works pretty well, but it's kind of time sensitive. So at mm. this point in the year, I can't do it. So I've kind of been, been playing with things. I'm also, whenever I'm hanging out with comedians, I'm always telling them about other comedians who have great opening lines. Mm. So I'm going to tell, I'll tell you about two comedians whose opening lines mm. that I've seen, and they don't do them all the time, but they work perfectly. The first one is Dave Hill. Mm. So Dave Hill is an American comedian who wrote the music for John Oliver's Last Week Tonight. His opening joke when I saw him come for Camden last year was, now I can believe that some people were kung fu fighting, but everybody... And just in that, and I probably sort of mis- misquoted him a little bit, perfectly set up what was about to happen. Mm. We're going to talk, it is, it's going to be music, because he's a musical comedian. It's a little bit sarcastic, it's a little bit, there's a spark in that. Mm. And there's sarcasm in it. And there's a subversion in it. And there's a questioning of the observation that I'm not just going to let this innocuous phrase go by without mm. questioning the logic mm. of that statement. Mm-hmm. Because... The idea that everybody was con- con- it's it's too permissive it's too it's too sweeping a statement, mm. and it set him up perfectly. He got a good laugh on that first thing, and then it just allowed him to to go and another one that that does that is Chris Betts mm. and Chris Betts is a Canadian comedian uh, who's doing very well here, and Chris's opening line oftentimes when I've seen him has been got my American accent in Canada, and again that's just that's perfect it's a perfect kind of opener because it sets up immediately I'm not American. Mm. I'm from Canada, dealt with. The accent, done. It's snide, it's uh, playful, and it, it, it's all the things that he's about to be. With comedy, and I think particularly with comedy in the, in the UK, you, you often have to set up parameters with the audience, and you have to address the, the unspoken. Because it's, it's like, there's this great thing, again, another Canadian, Tom Stade. Mm. The Tom Stade, I've heard, I, I don't know Tom, but I know people who know him, who got some advice from him. They said, the, you know, the first thing he does out is he comes out and he'll just stand there for five seconds and soak it in. But, he, you know, because he's such a big personality mm. and he plays a particular type of character, there's a lot of uh, bravado mm. and braggadocio about him doing it. But it's just there to set up, he's got a little bit of a dangerous, a little bit of a drunken look to him. Mm. And then he's going to speak and it's going to be something sarky and something a little bit, a little bit mean. Mm. But not mean, not, not mean spirited necessarily. But, you know, just playful and that kind of that kind of aggressive. I'm a cat. You're the mouse, and you're the you're the toy. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna tap you, and I'm just gonna play with you all all through the the set. And I'm gonna have I'm gonna have fun with you, and I'm gonna have fun at your expense. And I'm gonna say things that are gonna sound outrageous, but it's all play. Mm. I hope very hard that I will find the opening thing that allows me to say, okay, this is what I sound like, and this is. Genuinely how I dress. Mm. I do not, you know, I, I, don't, I don't get dressed up for a show. I try not to have any affectations in that respect. Mm. Even though it says the man wearing a scarf uh, <laughs> and like, in like 23 degrees. Like the, the reason for the scarf in part mm. is I wear, I wear a scarf most of the time because I have lots of them. And I thought, well, you've just got to wear them. But also I, I often wear head, these, these headphones, these wireless headphones. And I sometimes forget to take them off when I go on. And so it covers them up. Because sometimes they're, they're Bluetooth, and so they blink. If I forget that I haven't turned them off or I haven't taken them off, then throughout the set, people start looking at this mm. blinking light around my neck. And so it's just a quick way of, of masking that up so that no one could see it. So it was kind of the, the, the perfect storm of, well, it has, it has utility, but it's also something that I would normally wear anyway. You know, and like I said, I don't, I don't have a day job, so I'm, I'm kind of hanging around the house with this. This I was going to wear this today regardless mm. of, yeah. of coming here or, or performing tonight. I'm just looking... For the opener, mm. so it's it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of like that quest, that holy grail type quest. I don't know about you how uh, obviously on, on the one hand we're, we're both we're both immigrants, but 
in a way, there's a different there's a different relationship the UK has to Irish people and to Americans, and there are different stereotypes that get fed into that. Mm-hmm. You know, where an Irish comedian can be cheeky, an American can't really be cheeky in that same way because of, of where we come from, because of the size of our countries, because of the the influence our countries have on things. You know, because Trump is my president at the moment. I can't come out and say and do certain things without it being, by default, off-putting mm. or aggressive or arrogant. Mm. Reinforcing that American bully sort of thing. Yeah. And, and my jokes aren't bullying jokes. It doesn't fit a persona. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm, that I'm, I'm not coming out and doing that. I mean, do I, do I have high regard for myself? Yes, I, I, I'm perfectly fine being a narcissist. <laughs> but... It isn't the source of, you know, the wellspring of all of the jokes. Uh-huh. It's very few comedians who can come out and their whole shtick can be about how much better they are mm. than everyone there. When you, I think when you see it here sometimes, what you see is you see a handful of those, of, of particularly pat platitudes or statements, mm. whereas you know, that, that include words like legend. It's this kind of aside about how... And sometimes it's, it's said dep- deprecatingly, you're claiming to be a legend because you've done something that mm. is not legendary. And then there are other times when there, there are people who are, who are saying it, and the whole, the whole shtick is the, per- the person they are presenting themselves as believes it. Mm. And to me, I think if, if, you're, if the person you present believes it, you should never have to say it. Mm. It's just blatantly obvious that you are superior. But if you're superior, I think if you're, if you're not from the home team, mm. that's a tough sell. If you're going to talk about race and racism, then it helps a lot if you're not a middle-class white male. Because people will, ooh, what's this person going to say? As opposed to, pretty sure I know what that person's going to say. Mm. When you're a middle-class white male, if you, if you talk about racism, unless you know, there are perfectly very talented people who can do this and, and mm. get away with it, but I'm, I'm just saying in the kind of straw man that I'm building here. <laughs> if, if you do that... What is the target? Mm. And what are you going to talk about? Mm. And who are you... What insight do you have on this topic mm. that you can share that's going to surprise me, right? Because all comedy is surprise. Mm. But, there's, but there are certain things, you know, just by who you... By the nature of what you look like and how you present yourself, that if, you, if they come out of your mouth, they are not surprising. I don't think I've yet landed in you know, the many years of it doing this that on the thing that I can go, oh, that's, that's the thing that's sufficiently surprising, sets up who I am, allows me not to have to describe... Because that, that was the thing that I... That was one of the things that I don't like about talking about myself on stage, mm-hmm. is I don't like having to justify or explain who I am or what I sound like. <laughs> well, yes, yeah. In, in, in the way that, you know, if, if an English comedian comes up in front of an English audience, they don't have to justify being English. Mm. Some of them, you know, their whole routine might be about where in England they are from. And because they want to talk about their identity and they want to talk about their experience of the universe and their experience of the world around them, uh, but they don't they don't have to do that. Whereas in, you know if they came to to America they might they might have to do that. Uh, but I feel like to an extent American audiences are instantly more permissive of mm. okay you're from somewhere else just to start just make me get to start, telling, to start telling jokes yeah. and, and tell us something tell us something funny. I was watching uh, the Green Room with Paul Provenza which was oh. on TV a few like nearly a decade ago now, I guess. The premise of this show was you were getting to see behind the scenes. You were getting to see what, when you get a group of comics together, what a group of comics will chat about, the, the stories that they will tell each other. 
that they wouldn't tell in front of an audience. Of course, in this scenario, they are in front of an audience. Mm. And, and this, this one had Larry Miller, Drew Carey, Paul Provenza as the host, had Reginald D. Hunter, and had Eddie Izzard. There was a joke, there was a joke in there where Larry Miller and these American comedians had come over to the UK, and they were like playing the Palladium and other places. And this one comedian would, would come up, and every night, he was the headline act, and every night he would spend, he was he would about a 10-minute stretch all surrounded around the TV show Wheel of Fortune, mm. which is a game show that we have in America that it does not have here. And each night he would come off stage and be like, oh, that's a tough, that's a tough audience, that's tough. And, and it was either Eddie Izzard or Larry Miller or somebody came up to him and said, you know, they don't have that show here. Mm. If you just, you know, you could come up with, like, if you could just explain mm. what, what the show is. And he never bought it. And he was like, no, 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 that's not, that's not it. It's funny. <laughs> it's just it's just funny, yeah. and I and I thought that's the guy who doesn't want to learn the lesson that I also don't want to learn, <laughs> but that I'm having to try to figure out is we have different points of reference. Even though I've been here a long a long time, and I know how to change all the words, and I know a, a lot of the stuff, but he he's losing them because he's not accommodating the prejudice that they automatically have when they see and hear this person mm. and they hear they hear and see this topic. In the way that Jim Gaffigan came to the UK last year mm. and, and the beginning of this or the beginning of this year and he had a great run of shows, but he had a whole chunk about Hot Pockets, which is a signature piece and mm. I you know it's like a rock band, that routine, that people get dis- disappointed if he doesn't do those mm. jokes mm. because they're so it's like talking about bacon. He's gotta talk about bacon on mm-hmm. kind of every show because he's so synonymous with bacon jokes. Yet if you don't know what a hot pocket is, and you don't, and he doesn't spend time to explain, hot pockets are a little bit like a microwave pasty, but slightly grosser. Mm. <laughs> it's like and then a lot of that recognition is lost mm. on a particular audience. Mm. Now, what he's doing, and he's doing it in a big room, and he's doing it with a big international audience, and everybody kind of knows what they're expecting, so people are going to roll with it mm. to his benefit because he's been comedying for a long time. He's been a stand-up for a long time. He's not going to Glee Club on a Thursday night. Mm. He's not going to the top floor of a pub and telling a hot pocket joke to an audience like I don't I don't know what I don't know what the hell this guy's talking about. <laughs> He's his persona is well enough defined and people know what they're buying when they see him. And I think that's the thing about the politics jokes. When I've done nights where the audience knows that they're gonna get politics jokes, like I've done I did a big festival for the inauguration that was held in the UK, but predominantly in the US, mm. and I was the closing act on that. And when the audience know what they're getting, then I don't have to introduce it. I can just come out and begin. I'm so comfortable and so happy mm. when I'm in that scenario. Mm. But when, you, when you're on a mixed bill and it's a showcase kind of, kind of night, if, it, if it's forex or if it's more, mm. and you come out, it's like, oh, God, I've got a setup. Mm. I don't want to be the comedian. It's like, ooh, who voted? Who's going to vote? You know, let's mm. talk a little bit about politics. Like, no, I'm wasting time. Mm. I'm wasting time doing this kind of let me take you by the hand and move you between set pieces. Everybody owns a television. Everybody has seen an American television show. So you know what we sound and look like. Mm. Let me just start talking. Mm. Why is it that when you have a pint in front of you in a room, my job suddenly becomes harder in introducing myself? And fair enough. I, like I said, you know, no, one will know who, no one knows who I am. So I get that part of it is building the, the identity and, and, and establishing yourself. I'm probably just moaning. <laughs> it's, like, it's just me griping to myself <laughs> about, about things that, that I find kind of 
annoying, which other people were like, no, no, Sean, that's exactly what you should be having mm-hmm. to deal with and contend with and experience, and you'll be like so much the better for it in the end. We're all possibly true. Like I can have this. De- I don't even. You don't even need to be here. Let's just <laughs> me. This is just this 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 particular podcast is just me telling everyone that I don't want to talk about myself, talking entirely about uh, the inner workings of great. my I own. <laughs> Of my own comedy and the things that I don't like about the things that I have to do in front of an audience right. so that tonight I can go out in front of an audience and do all of those things. You've done really well. You've done really well, Sean. I had to ask you hardly anything. I was, like, I was like, I was trying to get a question about you, but you're like, no, we're talking about this. And you, you led it around. You've done exactly what you need to do with your act. You've led me around to these certain areas. And I've, I've been, yeah, okay, I'm totally with you. And you've gesticulated. It's been great. And... Uh, <laughs> You haven't used microphone from one side to the other. Yeah. It's been great. No, like, but okay, look, you, so telling, you, you just want to find a, a beginning to your act, right? I just, I, yeah. Is, so, uh, <laughs> listeners, if you could write into Winter with, with what should be the opening line for a slightly effeminate and, and terribly affected American mm. who, is, who is going to make jokes mostly about other people. Occasionally about himself. <laughs> We've really come to the end, really. This is the end of the podcast, and so I'm going to ask you now. Like, well, what, what's the next mission? Are you just—is it that you say you're t- writing that show about the prophet? You were the prophet, and all, or also there's the option of writing the show about having a premature child. Yeah, well, I'm writing. So, I am writing the stuff about the baby. That is what I'm working on, kind of currently. The focus is just to continually, like, kind of get better and and be good. And for the most part, that holds me in good stead. You know, I get good gigs. I'm on. I'm on good bills. <laughs> even if like, you know, you've never heard of me, I, I'm out there doing the work. Chipping away the cold face, isn't it? That's what it is. Just trying to get better. That's all. It, it is. And, and so, do you direct as well? Are you or just you're just predominantly you? You don't direct anyone else or a show? No, at the moment, like I would love. Nothing more than to be able to do some improv with, you know, find a troupe that I could participate with, but also, you know, still allow me to focus on stand-up or, or direct shows. Like, I, you know, once you learn how to, once you know how to direct, like, that skill doesn't go away, mm. you know, so all, all of those things are, are available. Like, I'm a photographer. I do all of my own photography. So mm. if you go on the website or you've seen photos of me that are used on bills and stuff, all of those photos are Selfies, actually, they're all they're all oh, taken by by me in my own studio wow. uh, setup. There are plenty of other things that I do and can do, mm. but predominantly my focus has been just the stand up act. Make sure you're you're getting you're getting stronger and, and stronger so that you can you can get to the point where you are regularly opening or mm. or, or you're regularly headlining the small places mm. or you know you're you're coming off consistently pleased with with your performance mm. and. Uh, you know, sort of paramount to all of that, the jokes are getting funnier mm. and the jokes are getting stronger and, 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 and kind of better put together. Well, Sean, where can we come see you in the next few months? Well, on Saturday, I'm with Arthur Smith at Health Club. Mm. <laughs> Other than that, I'm at the, pick the, I'm at the Laughing Horse Pick of the Fringe in, in, in Brighton. It's my second Fringe showcase, even though I'm not at the Brighton Fringe. Mm. I'm, I am taking spots from performers, right. taking them away <laughs> from people who would like to be able to advertise their show. I'm stealing them from them and, and doing jokes there. So I'm at Laughing Horse next week. I'm well, it's too late, but I'm 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 at your I'm at the yeah. the comedy box tonight. I'm in uh, Eversham at the end of June. Mm. There's a website, website. That, that has my name on it. It's called Sean. it's called MrSeanSellers.com. That's my Twitter handle as well. They will definitely have where where I am and where I can be seen and what I'm up to. And and Twitter will will, will generally have like it will have jokes on it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I do write jokes on my stream, not just advertised nights I'm doing. 
or, and, and retweet hate against my president. Those are the places. Well, Sean Setters, thank you for coming to the show, man. It's been great. Oh, thank you very much. And that was episode 49 with the very funny, the very cagey, Mr. Sean Sellers. He did the fan dance with comedians. I don't believe it. He hid himself behind other comedians and explained who he was using other comedians. Technically, he did show who he was. That is fine. But I really enjoyed talking to Sean. We had a gig after we recorded the podcast and it went great. Sean's a very funny comic, great improviser. Go and see him. Go see him live, find him on Facebook, Twitter, all those places. You can also follow this podcast on Twitter. We're there at The Comedy Defect. You can also follow me at Winter Phonander. You can also come see my live stand-up gig dates, which are on my website, which is being fixed by Danny Clives, which is winterphonander.com. You can see all of my upcoming previews, all of my gigs. They'll be up there on my website for you to see, to come and see me, because I need to throw some material at you to bounce it off you so I know where it's going. You can also support this podcast by going to Patreon, typing in The Comedy Defect Podcast, and you can donate as little as a pound, or as much as you feel this podcast is worth. And those of you that do donate, thank you, because you're paying for the people that can't. And those of you that can't donate, that's okay. Just share your favourite episode, tell your friends about us, or maybe go on to iTunes and leave us a nice, honest review. All of the podcasts are available on YouTube, so go there, subscribe to the channel, and like it, comment on it, have fun. I'm also stripping as many jokes as I can out of that Guinness Encyclopedia and putting them up on Twitter under the title The Book Dad Read, and the handle for that Twitter page is at Guinness Jokes. Now that was episode 49 with Mr. Sean Sellers. Next episode is episode 50 with a very good friend of mine. He is great having a bill with, you always have a laugh, and he's big energy, big energy comic, Christopher Norton Walker, or as Yanni Agisolo calls him, Christopher Endubs. Now, Chris is a very funny comic. He's a big presence in the room, and he's great to be on a bill with because he always makes the night such fun. And that is for episode 50. It's going to be great. You're going to really enjoy that one. Well, that's it for this episode. We'll see you next week for episode 50 with Christopher Norton Walker, or N-Dubs, as some people call him. Yeah! And if you haven't ever heard that, well, you'll know what it is by the end of that episode. Episode 50, Christopher Norton Walker. We will see you next week.